podcast starts. Hello everyone. If this is your first time listening to the show, welcome. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back and thanks for sticking with us. This show talks about horror. Horror in film, TV, other media, other items which we think of as adjacent to horror, and sometimes other things from our lives which we'd like to talk about just because that's who we are. I'm T.D. Velasquez, but you can call me Dan, and in a moment I'll be joined by another two hosts, Kirsty Warrow from Shropshire and Stella Gaynor in Manchester. They'll be joining me because today we're going to have another Missed Classics discussion. Our Missed Classics strand is one in which we have to talk about noted and well-regarded items of horror from over the years that somehow one of the hosts has just never managed to see before. And this time we're going to be talking about Drew Goddard and Joss Whedon's 2012 horror release, the Cabin in the Woods, and the person who's never seen it before, or hadn't until now, is me. So that's the perspective you're going to be getting on that. If you haven't seen the film, we'll talk about it in general terms for about 20 minutes, but then we're going to go into full spoilers. So uh, you've, you have been warned, but we will warn you again when it's time to stop listening if you don't want the film ruined. Uh, now... I'm recording this on my own and I'm recording it on bonfire night so if you can hear some bangs and crashes and explosions distantly in the background that's what those are. Just before we go into the main discussion about the cabin in the woods I feel like I I should acknowledge for any UK listeners um, that well here we are we're in lockdown again welcome back to lockdown. Um, Those of you who've been listening to us since the beginning of this podcast might remember that it was the first lockdown which basically inspired us to get this thing going. We started doing the podcast as uh, one of the ways in which uh, we relieved the tedium of being stuck indoors. That was 37 or so episodes ago, Um, and here we are again. If you're very depressed about the situation and a little bit frightened, um, I don't blame you at all and my heart goes out to you. I'm kind of saddened by the whole thing. We were expecting lockdown, um, I think, but I don't know uh, exactly. We didn't know exactly when it would happen. Um, And of course, there have been arguments that it should have happened several weeks ago. um, And certainly... um, There are people quite close to my family who have become ill or uh, even died um, in that time. Um, So they might have been saved uh, if if the lockdown had happened earlier. But um, that's where we are now. I guess we don't have much choice but just to hunker down, work if we can um, and, and get through it and hope that it will all be over in time for... For us to enjoy some kind of Christmas, although I very much doubt it will be anything like a normal Christmas. Um, basically, uh, good luck to all of you out there. Um, it's it's not easy for anyone. I count myself as one of the luckier ones because, as I think you'll know, um, I'm shielding anyway with my mum. Um, so it doesn't really change much in terms of our day today, but... Um, you know, for many of you, it will be a a very 
depressing turn um, and it, we're all facing a very uncertain future um, so just to say I'm thinking about you all and um, yeah well let's let's try and stay in touch with each other and uh, get through this together um, uh, the other thing I wanted to mention as a as a point of news just before we go into the Cabin in the Woods discussion is that um, last couple of weeks we talked about um, Stella's online um, academic panel about Ghostwatch. It's, it was part of um, a series called Weekday Night Bites, organised by the BAFTSS Horror Studies Special Interest Group. And uh, these are going to be regular nights. The next one um, is going to be on Wednesday the 18th of November at 7pm. It's going to be a talk about uh, British horror fiction of the 70s and 80s. It's called Night of the Nasties. Now, neither um, Stella or any of us are going to be involved in, in this one. But it does sound interesting. I mean, uh, we're talking about the kind of... Um, gruesome gripping horror fiction that was kind of inaugurated by james herbert's the rats and involved authors like um graham masterson sean hudson um herbert of course and and a few others um i have to say it's an area of horror i'm not very knowledgeable about i did read a few james herbert novels when i was in my early 20s and um, as a, a fan of, of the British horror cinema and a film student at the time, kind of quite sad that these novels seem to start appearing just at the time when British horror cinema, in the form that was kind of characterised by Hammer and Amicus and those kind of studios, was disappearing. And um, it probably, you know, the genre could have done with a shot in the arm from. Um, authors uh, from new material to draw upon by those kind of authors and to do new stuff however it's got to be said that a lot of these novels are kind of um nasty and gruesome in a way that probably couldn't have been done well by um, a low budget horror film in britain at the time um some of the james herbert novels were filmed later on um in uh australia or in canada and I haven't seen uh, many of those, but by most accounts, the results were not great. Um, nevertheless, it's um, a really interesting um, kind of area to go in. And, and it is those kind of authors are the people being spoofed by uh, uh, writers Matthew Holness and Richard Ayoade in one of the TV horror comedies beloved of myself and Kirsty and Stella, um, Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, for instance. Garth Marenghi, um, it's uh, sometimes been said, is very much based on Sean Hudson. Um, I hope that's not too insulting. Um, I know some people who quite like Sean Hudson stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, whatever way you slice it, it's an important chapter. Um, no pun intended, of the story of British horror. And um, I think for that reason, I'll, I'll tune into this discussion. It will be an eye-opener for me. Um, 
So I'll put a link to that in the show notes for this episode in case you'd like to sign up and join us um, listening in to this uh, academic discussion. The last one was quite fun. Um, So I think that's about it in terms of news. I'll be back on my own at the end to just give us some uh, recommendations for streaming entertainment that you might be able to use to alleviate the tedium if you are in lockdown at the moment. Um, But for now it's time to listen to our discussion recorded last week about the cabin in the woods. And before we um, hear that and hear Stella and Kirsty, let's just have a listen to the trailer for the movie. is unworthy of global positioning. That's the whole point. Get off the grid, right? Hello? I'm thinking this thing doesn't take credit cards. Time says closed. We're looking for, uh, what's it called? Tillerman Road. Not to get you there. Getting back. That's your concern. Oh, this is awesome. The lambs have passed through the gate. They are come to the killing floor. Let's get this party started! I seriously believe something weird is going on. What is that thing? We have to stay together. This isn't right. We should split up. Yeah, good idea. Really? Okay, so now it's time for our latest missed classic discussion. I am the the person who's missed the classic. Um, until now, obviously, I've seen it now. Kirsty and Stella have both know it of old. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the movie is uh, Drew Goddard's The Cabin in the Woods from 2012. And I've suddenly realised... I've I didn't do the one little bit of research that I really wanted to do to before this um, discussion, which is to make sure I know which Drew I'm talking about because I get confused over the Drews because there's like Drew Pierce who who writes superhero stuff, including Iron Man three I think, and there's Drew Greenberg who is another like Drew Goddard another Joss Whedon associate they're both from Buffy so there's all these Drews very confusing (laughs) they circulate around and and yeah and and I get them mixed up um um so I I, I'll explain that I think the reason I uh, have not seen this before I've always known that it was a film that I wanted to see and that looked right up my street but it's probably because um the three of us are all uh, Joss Whedon fans um, as I think the listener will understand, I think we've talked about it before on the podcast, um, and uh, I consider this a Joss Whedon film, although he didn't direct it; he he just he co-wrote it. Um, and there was a strange thing that's happened in Joss Whedon's career is that he gets less and less productive. Like Buffy went on for quite a long time, but after that, everything he does seems to get cut off quite early. Mm-hmm. Um, and and therefore, uh, you know, so like Angel was cancelled, uh, Firefly was cancelled really quick. Um, 
Uh, Dollhouse didn't last too long and I've never seen it. And even when he got involved in the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, he left that before was intended, I think. Um, so I just kind of... I, I, I've never seen this before and I, I've also never seen his version of Midsummer, uh, Much Ado About Nothing, which I'm sure is great. So I've just kind of left them there. But... To all things, there is a time, and it, uh, and when I decided I wanted to watch a load of horror films this Halloween, I thought, let's do it, finally. Um, uh, would either of you like to talk about um, how you discovered it, or um, kind of initially? Did either of you see it when it was first released at the yes. cinema? Yeah, I oh, did. Wow. I mean, I was a big... Yeah, I'm a big Joss Whedon fan, or at least I was a big Joss Whedon fan. Though things have happened over the last few years that um, make me slightly less kind of keen on. But anyway, at the time, yeah, I mean the the film, um, from what I said, it kind of it uh, was released in 2011, but it was one of the films that was made earlier and then got caught up in the whole writers' strike Mm. kind of thing that you know kind of disrupted Hollywood for a while. Um, Okay. So yeah, so I kind of wait, spent a lot of long time waiting, waiting for Cabin in the Woods to come, and then eventually, of course, it gets a UK release in 2012. Um, just to go back to your thing about this particular Drew Goddard, he is the Drew Goddard who um, was the um, kind of showrunner for Daredevil, um, wrote The Martian, uh, wrote the screenplay oh, okay. for World War Z, hey. was a uh, <laughs> staff writer on Lost, wrote Cloverfield. He's oh, a good one. So yeah. So he's a good one. Yeah. yeah. Is he, um, has he not had anything to do with the good place? Is that a different Drew? Um, well, it's not something that's coming up on his IMDb filmography okay. immediately. So that's not to say that he's not. It's just it's not. Oh no, executive executive producer. There we go. All right. On the good so, place. Yeah. So there we go. Yeah. Yes. Oh, and also um, producer and I think writer and director of uh, Bal- Bad Times at the El Royale um, in twenty eighteen. Yes, quite enjoyed. Which, uh, I haven't and I'd seen like that either. Interestingly, yeah, I think that that they, these two might in those two films might sort of fit together in a sort of you know kind of centre-bite puzzle boxy type way. <laughs> well, <laughs> again, though, I mean, that's similar. Yeah, it 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 just contributes to my confusion though because around the same time of that movie came out, a movie called Hotel Artemis came out, yes. which I think was directed by one of the other Drews. I yes. think. So that right, so, yeah, and that looked like it ought to have been part of the John Wick universe and wasn't. And <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what. Yeah, I mean, I didn't see it either. I just saw yeah. the trailers, and you yeah, know, it was quite interesting. But so, yes. so yeah, that, that's my confusion. And yeah, and Kirsty, I think I should just address. Uh, I think we all understand your unease about Joss Whedon in in recent yeah. years. We, I know we've discussed this kind of between ourselves in the past. I don't know if I can't remember if it was on the podcast or not. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think we all. Uh, well, I, my position is I kind of remain a fan of his work, um, but since um, the allegations against him by his wife came out, um, you know, I, I I try not to think about him as a person. Um, I uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, because um, uh, yeah, because I, I think the thing about Joss Whedon is that. It, during the earlier period in his career, he was not just producing no. work regularly, but he was a spokesman, and you know, yeah. uh, and he he talked a lot about feminism and and things like that. Um, yeah. 
and 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 also he got involved in like um in in, in the political scene in America not as a politician but just kind of as a commentator and um and and I think it was uh quite well I, and I generally found the things he said kind of chiming with me and inspiring to me and and obviously all that stuff is like tarnished now yeah um yeah at the same time it's the, the the personal lives of of those people and and none of my business um so i i i don't necessarily feel yeah. inclined to to investigate further and i just try and think about the work as separate because yeah. ultimately though, yeah it is and and it's not always possible to separate the work separate the the, the author from the work and and sometimes i don't think you should um uh but uh, i mean i think i think my choice is that uh, the person I can't separate from Joss Whedon's work is me. At the end of the day, um, he his stuff, uh, and not you know, and obviously it's uh, not just down to him, but down to the great writers and, and and creators he worked with on shows like Buffy and Firefly and people like Jane and Spencer and um, mm. and loads. Of, th- those those shows really shaped me at a crucial time in my life. So so I can't kind of write them off and and anything yeah. that comes from that font I will enjoy going back to um even though uh, certainly if uh you know a new film by Joss Whedon was announced now I I wouldn't know how I'd feel about it and I wouldn't be mm. rushing to see it but that doesn't mean mm. that I'm going to uh, I'm not excited to kind of rediscover the few bits left over of his earlier work that that I've not seen yet so um, I I just kind of thought it was necessary to to meant to, to kind of consider that, but I don't think it has a huge reflection on this particular film. Um, Stella, how long have you been a fan of this movie? Then I didn't see it on cinema release. Um, so it was what 2012 was it? So it was. my daughter was only three that year turned three that year so I was still absolutely not able to just go to the cinema at that stage um I remember my friends seeing it though and them saying to me you absolutely must watch this you're going to love this and then I think I didn't actually get around to seeing it until it was shown on television so so it maybe I don't know three four years after its release um and then yeah as they quite rightly pointed out I did really enjoy it I knew because of it being around for a while that there was something else going on with the film that it wasn't just your standard stalk and slash situation I knew that there was an underlying thing or a twist or, or whatever so it wasn't a big mm. surprise to me when there when there was you know all the other stuff going on in the film because I knew it, it was coming I guess yeah and okay so let's talk about the film without giving too much away for a few minutes just in case there are listeners who've who've not done that and then we'll just go right we're going to go spoilers now and those (laughs) listeners can choose to turn the episode off um i mean for the uh, yeah so it's it's a slasher movie or some kind of traditional horror movie in which um some young kids go and stay uh, in a cabin in the woods for a weekend <laughs> and spooky stuff happens and <laughs> if, you, if you keep it to that vague plot that could be the plot of countless horror movies yeah and that's the point of of this film but it is clear from the beginning of the movie that something else is going on you just don't know exactly how it all fits together 
until quite late on. Um, but um, this movie kind of... Um, uh, it talks about the construction of those kind of stories and, and yeah. has fun with the idea that... Um, uh, well... Uh, it's really difficult to talk about. It's yeah, it's extremely it's meta, meta but I'm mm-hmm. I'm just I'm just trying to think of things that I can say about it that don't give away mm-hmm. too much. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be kind and cowardly and turn that uh, problem over <laughs> to you. If you were to tell people who've not seen the film what, that they should watch it, what would you say, Kirsty? I think I would I, I would say that it's like you know if you've seen Scream, it's kind of doing a similar thing yeah. in that it takes the construction of the generic conventions of a horror film and then uses them to a kind of provide something that seems familiar and entertaining because you know what you're going to get but then also then kind of cleverly uses it to have a bit of a discussion about the function of horror mm-hmm. um and the state of horror in you know kind of the time at which it was made yeah I'd say yeah. exactly the really same funny. thing. It's, it's really funny. Yeah. I've essentially it, got the same r- sentence written down. So I feel like Cabin yeah. did a similar thing to the horror genre that Scream did, but sort of twisting yeah. the, into something new and commenting on it at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's really beautifully made. And I, I did notice that the director of photography is Peter Deming, who shot the last three Scream movies. Right. Okay. Um, so it just... It just looks and feels exactly like that kind of 90s teen yeah. horror. But at the same time, it also um, kind of ha- has deep connections to the, the whole of the of, uh, of the kind of teen horror genre. Mm. Um, and obviously connections that go beyond that. But I think um, as the film develops, but certainly in the beginning, I mean, they, they go to a cabin in the woods and the cabin in the woods looks... I mean, I know that there's not... The pro- cabins probably don't look that different, but this <laughs> one looks just like the one from The Evil Dead. Yeah, it does, um, doesn't it? Um, yeah, and uh, you know, and 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 the way the film kind of plays with things like the winding road leading to the cabin, yeah. the the stranger who you meet on the way <laughs> the gives station. you directions, <laughs> the but is yeah, the harbinger. That's just wonderful. Yes. Um, but uh, um, I mean, you could. It's not like. Uh, although it is true that the film starts um, and then develops and you don't fully understand what's going on until later, it's not like you watch the first half hour thinking it's a traditional horror movie. No. It's different from the very start. And one of the things that I loved and that I, I we can give away here is the just the pre-credit sequence yeah. is so mm-hmm. good. Um, and uh, basically... Um, it's it the, the opening scene is a, is a kind of workplace comedy scene. Yeah. Um, with I think. It's Brad Pitt uh, Amy, and and um, Richard Jenkins, isn't it? And um, Amy, is it Amy Acker? I'm not sure she's in the. I'm not sure she's in the first scene. At least she's not the the like the main conversation for the first scene is just those two, and then I think and, she, yeah, she joins Bradley Whitford. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and and. And and basically that that scene just unfolds as basically a comedy um, talking scene. Yeah. Then suddenly the title smashes in with horror music yeah, and blood red text. Yeah, it does. With like a scream text. on it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, 
Okay. Yeah, we go um, from sort of kind of Muzak, kind of, you know, yeah. industrial Urzat's uh, workplace to, yeah, <laughs> the cabin in the woods. It's great. Yeah. It, it, it's fantastic. And actually, um, yeah, Bradley Whitford has really got this kind of slightly comedic. Um, I don't know. He's. he's I mean, I, I, I'm not. I, I've never seen The West Wing, and I, I've, I know a lot of people who are huge <laughs> fans of it. Um, when I, yeah, and uh, and if the political situation in America gets less terrifying, I might <laughs> sit down and watch it. It's all on all four now. Yeah. But um, but no. So weirdly, my my um reference point for Bradley Whitford was always RoboCop three. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, which he's got a good death, but um, uh, but in, in kind of recent years, and I guess maybe starting around with this film, he's got this. Uh, he kind of sells the sardonic approach to horror, you mm. know, um, like mm. his role in Get Out, where he's very sinister, yeah. but he's also very funny. Um, yeah. And I haven't seen it, but the the, the most recent Godzilla film. That he's in as well. I, yeah. I I think he's kind of brings that too, um, and uh, so th- those scenes are just uh, really entertaining. Um, but then you go from that to, um, well, you just cut with no real explanation or, or connection from that to what could be the traditional character establishment mm. scene of of many mm. a horror film, where we've got the I think. Um, it's five uh, young characters, isn't it? One of them yeah. is Chris yeah. Hemsworth. Yeah. Um, Yay! <laughs> I, I, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's really weird. I, th- I think uh, absolutely. Um, but I, I think when people come to watch, come to discover this film in years to come, they'll think, "Oh, this must be what Chris Hemsworth did before Thor," which uh, was it came it's out in true. the same year as the Avengers. Although, did yeah. you say it was filmed a couple of years earlier? Kirsty. Yeah, it was filmed a couple of years old. I think he'd done. I think he'd done Thor, or was just about to do Thor when that went into, right. into production. Um, yeah, so it, there was a bit sort of a lag in terms of you know he would, would would not have you know had Thor had already come out he wouldn't have you know kind of taken on probably that kind of role. But yeah, right. it is it is what it is. I think what's interesting about the the kind of the characters is that we sort of start off uh, in you know in their kind of college dorm rooms and it's all very bright and sunny it all feels very kind of you know texas chainsaw massacre um they're you know packing for um you know kind of weekend away um and we get introduced to the gang but what's made clear pretty early on is that they don't kind of conform to the archetypes that we might expect for horror so for example the kind of blonde um uh character uh, female i've forgotten her name um oh no jules yeah, Jules. So she's she's you know kind of blonde, but we find out she's she's you know she's very bookish. She's uh you know kind of doing, uh, well she's a pre med student. Um, and then we have um Kurt, who is the jock, you know the kind of Chris Hemsworth character, but he's also quite mm. academic. Yeah, um, he's a sociology and then we get, major, yeah. isn't he? Mm. Yeah, and then we get also um then uh Dana who looks like she's the one who's been sort of set up to be the kind of final girl. We learn very early in that first scene that she's had an affair with a professor. Yeah. So that idea of the kind of final girl being the no, virgin. She ain't. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. She's not that yeah. either. So it's, you know, it kind of it introduces us to these these characters who we would at least visually kind of go, okay, here are our archetypes. Mm. 
but the that first scene very very quickly sort of deconstructs them or at least says these aren't the characters you expect. Yeah. Also, the blonde. Uh, obviously, I'm going for a bit of a, a superficial detail here, but she isn't really mm. blonde, is she? That it kind of becomes no, clear to she, the yeah, plot yeah, that yeah. she's yes. been dyeing her. Hair. Yes, she's been dyeing. Her, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Just it's a nice little touch. Yeah. yeah, and then and then like um their friend turns up who's you know, the kind of stoner character that you always yeah. get and in these movies. Yeah. <laughs> he's um, absolutely the archetype though, isn't he? He is. Yeah, well, well, but he's he's looking for um, answers the whole time, isn't he? He's not just he's not just yeah. easy pickings, he's 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 the no. voice of reason. In in the cell yeah, he's yeah, like he's very, come on. <laughs> he's very intellectual. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, and also I mean Oh, just like, just the fact that he has a bong that can be disguised as a, as a normal beverage cup—that's great. Yeah. You know, he, yeah. he is a level above the usual stoner <laughs> in a movie. Yeah, no, absolutely, <laughs> but I think he's 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 uh, you know kind of really important to the kind of function of a, a meta horror, mm-hmm. isn't it? You need a character who can lampshade all of the, the conventions mm. as they kind yeah. of happen. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, and yeah, and instantly it's him is in the basement when they're looking at yeah. all the bits. That he's the is one who's like, really? Like, put it down. <laughs> yeah. Stop it. Put it down. Don't, don't, don't say don't. that Latin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely not. So Why would you do we we are soon going to to trespass into spoiler I so. territory. I think there's not much yeah. farther we can go. No. I just no. want to say, I thought the the lead actress uh, in this, uh, Kristen yeah. Connolly, yeah, um, yeah, she's she's great and. I, I kind of felt a bit like Dakota Johnson has stolen her career because um, she does look <laughs> a lot like her. D- uh, do you guys know what what's happened to this actress? I, um, I, I was thinking about this last night actually, and I don't don't know what else she's done really. Um, I'm just gonna have a look now. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is sense with the with the casting is that you sort of feel a little bit like you're in a kind of Joss Whedon episode or something. Yeah, yeah you do. Um, particularly well, because of yeah, I mean, yeah, particularly because well, you've got Whitford and, and Jenkins who also kind of at that point are television actors rather than film actors. Um, yeah, yeah. So no, she's just she's done quite a lot of television. So she's in um, she's in uh, Prodigal Son, or well, she's been in the Prodigal Son on television at the moment. Is that the Western? Mm, yeah. House of, oh, she was in House of Cards as well. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, so not... Yeah. But, no, the, the, there is something about the types of actors seem very carefully chosen as well. Like, um, mm. I was convinced that I'd seen the actor who plays... Is it Mitch, who's the kind of stoner character? Is he called oh, no, Marty. Marty. That's uh, Fran... It's called Marty. Fran Kranz. Fran Kranz. Yeah. yeah, I was convinced. Was dollhouse. Well, that's yeah. So I read, and um, so I, but that's one of the Joss Whedon things that I haven't seen. So I was convinced that I must have seen him in Buffy or Firefly or something because he's that kind of guy. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I, I, I just didn't. Obviously, he, he wasn't in those things, but um, he's fantastic. Um, so mm-hmm. just before we, we move into spoilers, then um, w- without specifying how i just want to tell the listeners that i i think an appeal of this film is that i i i could now choose to go and watch any friday the 13th film or 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 any film of that ilk and imagine that what this movie says about the reasoning behind it is going on (laughs) um 
they all kind of fall into this universe. What kind yeah. of universe it is, I, I wouldn't want to spoil though. No, no, although I'd like to, I'd, I'd like to characterise it as a sort of the kind of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern effect. Hmm. Oh, uh, how how no, do you uh, characterise that? It, in in that that um, that it's very easy to conceptualise that those kind of movies with the, you know the kind of what's happening in the next room. Or, yeah. 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 Oh, <laughs> so, this, you know this. Yeah. So, so I mean, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is the Tom Stoppard's play that takes like yes, two minor yeah, characters yeah, are, are from Hamlet yes. and yeah. uh, and gives them a whole kind of life. And therefore, yeah. if you go and watch Hamlet with those Tom Stoppard characters in mind, it's it's going to change the the thing the film to some extent the the meaning of the yeah. play. Sorry, I haven't read Rosencrantz and Guildenstern or seen it. I'm shamefully got to admit. Um, yes. So um, is that what you mean there? Yeah, no, what I mean is is that you can, because of the, again, not spoilery, but because of the relationship that this film sets up between its, the primary location, the cabin, and the other group of characters, um, is you can watch those films, like, you know, like you were saying, and almost imagine the, the work that is happening elsewhere yeah. by this yes. separate group of people we're not seeing. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. It's quite a fun way to sort of retrospectively think about those things. No, it's great. And, um, you know, uh, again, avoiding spoilers, the film manages to do that in such a way that um, it... it <sighs> It could you could do that with quite a vast majority of horror films. It's just it's not like a narrow genre. It's like it's not just no. the the kind of um, slasher movies. It it is kind of wider than that as well. Um, and I think that's quite impressive, really. Um, in a way, it'd be quite um, a feat to 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 take all the films that you could theoretically insert into the universe of this one and create the cabin in the woods averse um mm -hmm. and i think that would be quite vast okay yeah. so stella is there anything you'd like to say about the film that is spoiler free before we move into the the, the point of no return section of the podcast uh i just um just one sort of fun fun fact i suppose so heather langenkamp who was nancy in nightmare on elm street she and her husband own um a special effects studio called AFX Studios, and she's listed as Heather L. Anderson on the credits. But yeah, she, she and her husband did all the, or part of the studio that made all the monsters and did all the makeup, which I thought was quite nice. Oh no way! Nice little link. I didn't know, cause I didn't know that's what she she did, and I was like, oh, right. it's her. Yeah, so that's what she does. It's called AFX Studios, and it's owned by Heather and her husband. So that's what she did after Elm Street. Isn't that nice? Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Oh. I know. <laughs> But yeah, everything else I've got here is totally spoilery, so no. <laughs> okay, yeah. so let's dive into spoilers then, listeners. Stop listening or you can't <laughs> complain to us at this point. Yes. I'll put a time code in the um, description so that you can skip on straight to the recommendations if that's what you want to do. So let's spoil the heck out of the cabin in the woods then. Um, Kirsty, what do you want to say first? <laughs> Oh, where do I want to start? Okay, well, I want I want to start with really about the the idea that the the Cabin in the Woods is about horror films. It's about how we make horror films and why why we need mm -hmm. them. Um, and I think what's interesting is that I, I kind of what I came to after 
teaching this for a few times and, and, and kind of sitting with it and watching it is that Hadley and Citizen, the two Bradley Whitford, Richard Jenkins characters, are essentially kind of these substitutes for uh, Joss Whedon and, and Drew Goddard as write, as writers. Because yeah. they talk about the director and they, you know, they talk about the system and the, you know... Um, right. So, you know, they kind of are characterised as sort of two middle-aged white men whose job it is to deliver for the director the experience that the audience will enjoy. We kind of, they talk about the ancient ones as and we've got to kind of placate and sacrifice for the ancient ones. Um, and it's for them really to sort of try and to engineer the right characters into the right situations, to, you know, along genre lines. Um and the film, you know, the kind of ultimately it kind of comes down to the idea that the film, the ending of the film, which I don't think works great, I don't think it's the strongest ending, but it does seem to suggest that kind of there is a, you know, kind of they are there is a need for horror in our culture. Mm-hmm. There is a need for cinema or for audiences to kind of to watch things that is can be quite abject and quite violent because in some ways that you know kind of um satisfied a darker need um and i think the film kind of ends with this kind of question of what happens if we do like if the system breaks down if there are no horror films (laughs) um (laughs) then what happens you know kind of what need is that fulfilling i think um and that you know that yes i think that's kind of where the, the film kind of ends in terms of that as a kind of question but i think the that we get interestingly torn at about sort of two thirds way through the film between rooting for Dana and her f- friends and wanting them to kind of get out, yeah, but rooting for Hadley and Citizen to actually be able to deliver the thing they need yeah. to do. And actually, I'd argue that they are those two are more likable and more relatable yeah. because, as horror, you know, kind of horror fans, we've kind of entered into this thing where we what we want is death. Yeah. Like, you know, only one character can survive and she might not. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. You know, there's a bit where, where I think, um, you know, there were the driving towards the tunnel, trying to get the, the camper van out of the, you know, kind of the, the, the arena, um, if you like. Um, and you, you, I think you, you, you're torn. You want them to escape, but then maybe not massively because you know that there's still three of them alive and that's, yeah, that's no there's good. There's 45 minutes film. to go, so. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Um, so it's a kind of, I think it, it's the, the last act is really interesting um, because it asks some questions about what our relationship is to horror and what our relationship is to violence and death on screen in that particular, yeah. you know, kind of genre. Yeah. So that's kind of my thing really is, yeah, it's the, I like the metaness of it and I like the comedy of it, but I think it, it's asking some really interesting questions about why we need horror in our lives and what happens if we don't have it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm going to move to you, but um, Kirsty, later on we'll come back to the point about the ending. I'd like us to talk mm. spe- specifically about the ending and, and what you felt yeah. didn't work. Um, but Stella, to you now, um, what would you like to say first? Um, well, I've got sort of three main things that I want to talk about, and they're all kind of connected, so I think we can we can get rid of them now. Um, so I agree with Kirsty with its sort of metaness and how it's deconstructing horror and asking lots of questions about horror. Um, certainly making us question our own voyeuristic love of watching characters die. So we want to see them die because we're watching a horror film, but then there's the other layer of, well, we want to see them die because we want whatever the faculty's up to to be resolved. And then when Sigourney Weaver rocks up, we don't you know, we don't want to annoy Sigourney yeah. Weaver, do Which we? Which is a great 
I, I love just that. loved hearing yeah. her voice. But, yeah, yeah when she like, walked in. Oh, she, hello. Whenever she walks in, though, it's always like, yay! <laughs> like, you know her. Well, I th- for, for a while, I thought it was just going to be her voice. I thought we'd never see her yeah. because she has done all... You know, she's like the voice in... Um, the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, and she's the voice in a lot of things in, yeah. in recent years, and she does have a, a, a very recognisable voice. And yeah. I just thought that might be it. And I, I kind of quite liked it that she was the godlike presence that you yeah. just wouldn't see. She's also um, she's a voice in the Simon Pegg Nick Frost movie Paul. Um, yeah, that you kind of hear throughout the film yes. and, and stuff like that. So, um, uh, but yeah. So, no, no, it's wonderful that she turns up, and it, and you know, it's great that she represents, uh, you know, a, an early strong example of the archetype of the final girl, essentially. Yeah. You know, so she she comes from the kind of movies that that, that are being discussed, even mm. even if she's in the kind of more sci-fi end of them. Yeah, um, mm. but yeah. So sorry, Stella, I interrupted. No, so it's, it's always good to get excited about Sigourney Weaver. Um, so yeah, <laughs> makes us question our own voyeuristic love of watching the characters die, and then because you've got the undercurrent of they're being funneled into various actions. So you know, with the with making um, Kurt to be more jock-like, and you know, making Jules become mm. more more sort of sexually available, I guess. Because it's like mm. gas pumped into the cabin, isn't there, to make them behave yeah, yeah. in, in yeah, bad yeah, ways. Yeah. And it's that how they're all being controlled and funneled down certain avenues to to die in certain ways. I think it's a interesting. It's something for other people to remember. I think watching other horror movies going forward, how we can't because it's being controlled by the director and being controlled by these other forces. So the the people who make movies, how we how we can't and we shouldn't fault the characters for their actions. Like the director's controlling <laughs> them and the and the horror genre is controlling them. So when people are like, oh my god, I wouldn't, t- I totally wouldn't do that, and I wouldn't go up the stairs. And it's like, well, they can't decide. They're inside this whole horror yeah. machine, and we should, you know, if you're gonna sit down and watch a horror, then 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 that's okay. Yeah. Although although what I would say to that is that there is that kind of sense of that you know there's quite big deal that's made about the harbinger yeah. isn't it? about the 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 um you know kind of dismissal of the warning that they get given so the idea of kind of free will in horror is is often important but in only in as far as that we kind of feel like that when they have those sort of sites of choice mm. that it helps to kind of legitimize the other things that they do that are absolutely kind of because of the you know mechanisms of the system yeah. um but you know, every time somebody says, oh, well, you wouldn't yeah. do that. Well, you wouldn't. But then you're watching horror. You want them to die. They yeah. have to make the decisions. <laughs> they're going to lead them towards death. The film would be 10 and minutes. And when that happens, yeah. And also when that happens, we, as spectators, we enjoy, don't we, feeling superior. Of because we do. go, well, well, I wouldn't have done yeah. that. Wouldn't have done that. Just use the axe. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Come on. Yeah. Like Otherwise, duff. the film would be 10 yeah. minutes of somebody getting to the cabin and going, yeah. nope. <laughs> and then nope. just leaving. <laughs> and then yeah. where, would, where would we be? We'd be yeah. watching a rom-com exactly. is where we'd be and yeah, nobody yeah. wants yeah. that. And then <laughs> the other thing, well, I guess the other thing that I really liked was, so near the end, when they pressed the big comedy red button, so it's like the purge yeah. sequence or the purge scene, mm. and all the monsters are really fed up as well as they get released. So they're all really fed up and pissed off about being contained by the facility just yeah, for entertainment we... purposes. And I really like all the monsters just running around and breaking people and smashing people because they're just like, yes, yeah. <laughs> we've been let out. And I really like that as a, you know, that it's not just the characters that are being sort of tormented in 
in this system, but then so so are the monsters as well. And they turn against yeah. the people who've yeah. been holding them captive. And I thought that was nice that the monsters didn't just all go after because it's just Dana and Marty by that point, isn't it? That they yeah. that the whole thing became like a, a free for all, I suppose. And I really like that as part yeah. of the third act of it just getting more and more chaotic and bursting out of its horror slasher sort of box, mm. I suppose. No, it's a great example of escalation, which is something that I've started mm. to look for in in horror movie scripts. How do you raise mm. the stakes throughout the movie in a yeah. way that's natural to what you've set up? And and it all it it all does feel natural, and but it goes to to hell in a logical way. Um, mm. and, and I like that. Um, what's your other point, Stella? Um. Oh, sorry. That was it. Just my, my three things. Oh. Yeah. Oh, wow. Over okay. to you Sorry. now, Dan. <laughs> oh, well, um, I suppose what surprised me about it, um, two big things. I didn't. I knew that it was obviously going to reveal something beyond what it appeared to be on the surface. I, I knew that it was like a meta movie in some way, and I, I also knew that it had a connection with kind of reality TV in some way. Um mm. And I think there's a really nice moment, isn't there, where um, Marty discovers the camera, yeah, it, the, the kind of fibre optic camera in his room, and his first thought is, "Oh my God, we're on a reality TV show," <laughs> and uh, and for a second when he realises that, he thinks everything's okay. It's like, "Oh great, we just have to do some things and win some prizes or yeah. whatever." Yeah. Um, and then a zombie comes through his window, um, <laughs> but uh, but what I didn't expect was it to develop in a Lovecraftian direction. Um, and you know we we reviewed a Lovecraft film the other week, didn't we, Kirsty? And um, we, we did. Talk, I, well, you did. Um, I still haven't seen that. Um, <laughs> but we did talk about the kind of Lovecraft on film and and how difficult historically it's proven to be. Um, and and you know basically that almost all horror films are are a bit Lovecraftian. But very mm-hmm. few are completely Lovecraftian. Very few really lean into his kind of cosmology mm. and stuff. This does. Um, and I was kind of thrilled by that because I found it, you know, pretty new. Um, I, I know that... <coughs> oh, my voice is going. This is hideous. Um, I know that there are a number of kind of Lovecraftian movies that I haven't seen. So therefore, mm. it might feel newer to me than it, it does to you. Um, and I do find the the kind of downside to the Lovecraft universe is that it's all a bit depressing. Um, you know, you, the, I don't think love... The, there is such a thing as feel-good horror. Um, Stella, I, yeah, was, I think... I, I described screamers like feel good horror, but Lovecraft yeah, stuff definitely isn't. Um, <laughs> and this movie, even though it is very very funny and kind of delightful, it it, it does end with the end of the world. It's yeah. kind of heroically bleak. Really, it's uncompromising about that. Um, so therefore, I I came away from it thrilled, but also a little, you know, a little deflated. But but the, but not deflated because the movie wasn't incredibly imaginative with the way that it did what it did. The other thing about it that really surprised me was the very specific nature of the references in it. Yes. And I, I'm thinking most directly about a character who is named only in the credits. Um, and he is named as 
Fornicus, Lord oh. of Bondage and Pain. <laughs> so he's the. So I, is it? Um, I, we'll talk about Kevin in a bit because I. It, um, well, I was going to say I've got, I've got I've got a picture a picture of the um, board in front of me, and there is uh, on on the board there is no um, Fornicus, Lord of Bondage and Pain. Um, well, are you talking about the, the, the kind of deadite? That, that's what they no, called in the thing. Uh, no, the um, you know the guy who's clearly supposed to be Pinhead from Hellraiser. Yes, yeah, yeah. So yeah. The, in in the in the cabin the wood they're called. Um, it's on the board as we'll talk about the board in a moment uh, as deadites, which okay. are meant to be like Cenobites. So ah, that's, right. that's where he is. That's just really <laughs> weird that they chose that word, though, because that is the name of yeah. the monsters in Evil Dead. Mm. And presumably oh, okay. it's copyright to the Evil Dead as well. So yeah. Oh, OK. Or maybe it's not. Presumably maybe, they... I mis- maybe I misunderstood that. But if they did... Well, no. I, well, I don't, maybe, on the other hand, I well, don't uh, know. Maybe, yeah. maybe they did own okay. that name. Maybe it was the same studio or something. I, I, okay. I don't know, but... But yeah, can, so, can we can, can we talk about the board though? Because I think it, the board. Needs yes, board. I think. Uh, as, let me put it this way: as soon as I saw the board, I screenshot that moment because I thought yes, I'm going to want to yeah. come back well, to I mean, this. Here's the thing, though: is that the about you know it's it's it, that's one of those moments, isn't it? That for, for a cinema viewer, you're not going to be able to take mm-hmm. it, and it's absolutely in there for repeated viewings yep. where you can kind of pause and. You know, and kind of look at what the board says. But of course, in 2020, I love the fact that this has now become a meme. I, love, I was going to say, um, everyone's favourite meme. <laughs> yeah. Who had such yeah, and such? Says, who, yeah, yeah. Who had killer killer wasps or whatever? <laughs> yeah. or, you know. Oh right. <laughs> kind of I didn't know that. Mood aliens. No, it has. So the the kind of shot of Richard Jen- Jenkins stood in front of the, the board has now become the you know kind of oh what what new horrors yeah. is, <laughs> is is twenty twenty throwing us. Um, so oh, right. the, there was a whole list of things on the board, but include if I just read them, if it's okay, um, Go for werewolf, it. alien, beast, mutants, wraiths, zombies, uh, reptili- reptilius, yeah. um, yes. clowns, witches, sexy witches, <laughs> demons, <laughs> hell, hell lord. Angry molesting tree, <laughs> and then something that's been removed. Um, giant snake, deadites, Kevin, Kevin. who's Kevin, yeah. mummy, the bride, the scarecrow folk, snowman, dragon bat, vampire, <laughs> dem- dismemberment goblins, sugar <laughs> yes. plum fairy, yeah, merman, yeah. something that then is something re- reanimated. I can't see because yeah. he's doing it. Just yeah. the reanimation. Yeah, yeah. Something says Huron. I don't know. Um, Then there's Sasquatch slash Wendigo slash Yeti (laughs) dolls. The Doctor. uh, Then um, Red. uh, So zombie redneck torture family. Zombie redneck torture family, which are the Buckners. Um, The uh, Jack o' Lantern giant, and then it says twins. twins. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that the Which one... Which is just such a lovely set of references. Yeah, it's just brilliant. I, you know, I, I, I just stopped the film and read them all. I think that the Cenobite <laughs> guy must be Hell Lord. Yeah, um, okay. That make, would make sense to me. Whereas, yeah. does it say Dead Eyes, actually? Where is it? Yeah, it does. Dead. Under okay. Giant Snake. <laughs> oh, um, so you're gonna have to post a yeah. picture of the image so that... that uh, this Between Giant Snake yes, and that's Kevin. Yes, that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, so I see it, and yeah, and Kevin. Nobody's voted for Kevin. No. no. <laughs> so I just I wondered what you guys thought Kevin was. I mean, if it is definitely definitively revealed which creature at the end we see is Kevin, then I then it went over my head. Do you guys know who Kevin is? Or is it I don't just... know, but I d- it, 
yeah. No, I don't. I don't. I I don't remember who Kevin. I don't is. know. The only thing but that I, I'm sure, I'm sure that Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard, Goddard know exactly who Kevin. The only thing I'm that sure they do. Yeah. Popped into my head was that book. We have to talk about Kevin, but I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. No. Let me ask the internet. Who is? <laughs> Who is Kevin? Who is Kevin? In Cabin, Cabin in the Woods, in the woods. not Kevin, Kevin Bacon. Yeah. No, but of course, you know, I think th- there's a wider conversation, isn't it, where where this board sort of ties into that kind of dialogue that the film has around um, American horror, but American horror is being really culturally specific. Yeah. So you know, they're kind of there are often references to is it Sweden and to to Japan. Yes, yeah, so we see um, yeah. a kind of J-horror in progress with the... Yeah. Are they called Yurei? The kind of female Japanese ghosts yeah. that, uh, that yeah. you often but it's get. Certainly, so, it's a yeah, school-based, isn't it, in the classroom, yeah. and there's a yeah, kind of very J-horror kind of, yeah, the ring grudge. Sam- oh, by the Sam- way, Sam- um, Sam- yeah. um, sidebar, it? in my recent searching for horror movies ah. to watch for Halloween, I found a movie, I think it's on Shudder, called... Sadako versus, um, oh, what's the name of the ghost from the Grudge? And uh, I don't know. Oh, I I can't remember. But anyway, it was that, and it and it was a and it was officially licensed version of that. So that's a real <laughs> film. Um, wow! And Shudder endorse it. I think it might have been a Shudder exclusive, but um, anyway, you guys don't know about it. Maybe I, I have therefore given in myself the job of having to investigate that and find out what the heck it is. Um, I can't imagine. But so, sorry, Kirsty, that was a complete digression no, no. to your point. No, no, no. Mm. There was, I just, I just, you know, I thought it was kind of quite clever that, that rather than you know, as sometimes an American or Western perspective sort of seems to make sort of suggest that their <laughs> perspective is universal. Yeah, like that. Yeah, that this has, you know, kind of clearly has a, a kind of a. Or kind of pays deference to the idea that different, you know, horror works differently in different cultures. And yeah. That, but they're all kind of like the American team is competing against the, you know, the kind of yes. Japanese team and the, you know, kind of Scandi teams try and get this ritual done. <laughs> yeah. Which again, I thought it was quite fun. Was, That's uh, great. Know. And the, the idea that they only need one ritual to work out of yeah. the three or however many there are, there, there might yeah, be yeah, even yeah. more than that. Yeah. So therefore, it is a competition. Um, yes. Uh, it's funny. I um, although I do like the characters, you know, played by Bradley Whitford and and Richard Jenkins and Amy Acker and the others in the control room scenes, and and I like the kind of ordinariness of them. I didn't, mm. I didn't root for them exactly because um, maybe I'm uh, <laughs> uh, like impressionable, but I the kind of horror stereotyping of the main. Uh, young leads kind of did work on me and, and I found myself well maybe I watched these kind of movies in the wrong way I don't no. want them to die um, <laughs> normally I want them to get away and survive I just enjoy being thrilled by by the journey and also because yeah. we could see them being sprayed with pheromones that make them stupid or horny or whatever you know it's like mm. it's not even their fault that they're making all the wrong decisions no. leave them alone you bullies but of course, the, the the in the wider narrative of the film, um, you know, Sigourney Weaver and her underlings are only doing this to these characters because if they didn't, it, the, you know, yeah. they're doing it in service of the wider world and they're saving the world essentially. They're heroes. Um, yeah. But that's what I mean about that kind of Lovecraftian depression. It's like 
even the the kind of the heroic characters and the hero, heroic logic in this is depressing and like merciless. Um, yeah, which is think it, fine. There's, mm-hmm. there's a, I mean, I'm not sure if it's just now as, as a sort of kind of in a, in a mm-hmm. you know, almost <laughs> ten years after the film, at least the, ten years after the film was made. But there's, there seems to be a sort of you know kind of again a, a discourse that that on one hand yeah. sort of presents these kind of boomer characters who are just doing it because that's the way it's always been done and this is kind of you know like yes it's terrible but you know it's the for the greater good isn't it um whereas you know they're kind of particularly towards the end with um dana and marty there's this very kind of millennial Mm -hmm. you know what no fuck off you know we're gonna (laughs) like why should we you know and their rebellion you know kind of the suggestion is that it ends the world obviously but there's you know kind of there's a, a defiance, isn't there, in those kind of final moments where they kind of go, you know what, we're not gonna, you know, is, I'm not sure this is worth it, like, you know, yeah, in terms of what the world that, is. I mean, that's true, because <clears throat> um, Marty kind of says, uh, maybe it's time to make a change, and Sigourney Weaver says, no, not change, it just <laughs> end, good, it will it? be the end the of the hand. world um, if if we yeah. don't do this, which we've mm. always done. And but of course the world has never ended before, so that they don't really know what what's going to happen and yeah. what the ultimate outcome will be, and maybe something better will emerge. But it does it certainly doesn't look like it. <laughs> no, is yeah. it just that, that the hand looks a bit crap? No, no it's a, you know it's a big CGI <laughs> hand, so it's not it's not yeah. looking particularly. <laughs> so what was it about yeah, the ending so. that didn't work for you, Kirsty? I just just that kind of mm. I don't know. I just I would have. Yeah, I think it's the CGI hand. Right, <laughs> that's my my principal problem with it. Yeah, yeah, and and it, but it, it but the way it does. I mean, I know that it kind of fits in with the film, so I, I I kind of get that, and it kind of reaches towards the camera in a sort of kind of you know final fourth wall break. Yeah, kind of yeah. Thing. But I just you know I'm I'm it just yeah it it didn't feel like as as powerful a moment as it could have been. I'm not sure how they would have rectified that. I'm just. This well, I mean, my, my kind of personal re- response to it. I think maybe it's something to do with. I always feel that <coughs> the kind of old ones horrors that are invoked <coughs> in Lovecraft stuff. Obviously, when you're reading the book, you don't see them. It's something in your imagination. You might choose not mm. to visualize it, but you certainly mm. know how the characters feel about it. You know how you feel about it. I yeah. think it on film, <laughs> it's. It's always in danger of being disappointing when you see it, either because the special effects aren't up to it, or maybe because just you shouldn't get a clear look at yeah. whatever it is. It's a sh- yeah. I suppose it's a shame that it looks like a very human hand, as in, yeah. you know, the old god is basically a big bloke, um, which is, you know, but at the same time, I suppose... Uh, I don't know what what else would you yeah. throw a load a load of tentacles, um, who knows? Yeah. Um, so I think I'm in between the both of you. I I I do really like the ending. I think that because it's quite it's not abrupt, but every time that I've seen it and it ends and the credit show, I'm always like, yeah, love that. But I think maybe it just could have been just perhaps realised a bit better because I think yeah. because so much of the film looks amazing and loads of there's loads of practical effects and it does look stunning so maybe it's just the end just might look a bit shoddy compared yeah, to the rest of yeah. it and that's not to say that i think in any way that 
horror films should be entirely practical effects because I don't. Um, it just feels like a bit of a switch, like a, a down gear maybe perhaps from how amazing the rest of the film has looked and how yeah. convincing lots yeah. of the other effects have looked. And then it's just a bit, oh, this, you know, just looks a bit old, I think. The mm. tech on it yeah. just looks a bit yeah. old. I mean, I suppose yeah, I, think I think when that's you... My Weirdly, when you make that shift, that genre shift into cosmic horror, mm. you are limiting your options in terms of how you realise it. You know, there are a lot of things in, implied by those kind of massive cosmic gods you can't do practically. Um, and, and, and certainly, think, unless you're going to build a planet or a model planet or something, which, do. of course, you, you can do. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, so... Uh, it, it it's a tough um, challenge for a filmmaker to set themselves. Um, yeah. On a slight digression, have you both seen The Mist? I haven't. Uh, the Mist. Uh, the Frank Darabont film. Yes. They do no, that quite well because, okay. you know, it's a low-budget movie and it's mainly th- there's something in The Mist. There are creatures in The Mist and you mainly see mm. them in the form of tentacles which reach out of The Mist. Mm. But later in the film, you do get a couple of... Sh- kind of distant shots of the full-size creatures they're kind of enveloped by mist but you can just kind of see them and um the uh, the the way it's done is quite effective you still feel kind of awe-inspired by it um yeah but i do think it's it's something that's that's very rarely attempted uh even less so kind of successfully done in a movie can i just go on yeah, no, it just it just occurred to me that um, I know the I know the film came out here the same year as um, the the first Hunger Games film came yes. out. But um, you know, and I've obviously I know that kind of existed as a book before this film did. But it just seems to me that that both both of those two films, I'm not saying the Hunger Games franchise, but the first film, um, mm-hmm. play with the the same kind of set of ideas about you know kind of particularly young people and you know kind of our enjoyment and the function mm-hmm. of suffering on screen um and then mm. the way in which the people who are sort of involved in the mechanisms of producing that you know jeremy kyle etc yeah. um how you sure. you know kind of disconnect from the kind of human cost of those yeah. things um and you know kind of how that you know we're arguably oh it's you know commenting isn't it on on kind of um desensitized media culture yeah and, and, yes. and suffering is spectacle um, you know, in, in in very similar ways, which, you know, I think it's a legitimate kind of discussion yeah. to have around contemporary media culture. Definitely. Not yeah, just I, horror. I haven't seen The Hunger Games, but... Um, Dan. Um, for the, and, Dan. Well, well, well <laughs> it contributes to... An, well, but I know what you're saying. Uh, the reason I haven't seen it is part of the same reason why I didn't see The Cabin of the Woods for so long, apart from the Joss Whedon thing. Uh, in 2012, I was involved with the stage production of a Nigel Neal TV play called The Year of the Sex Olympics, which also does that and comments about reality TV, and was written in 1968. Um, and people were telling me at the time that, that you've got to go see The Cabin in the Woods, you've got to go see uh, The Hunger Games. I was like, well, no, actually, I won't, because because I don't want to rip those off. I'm I'm doing a play that was written decades ago. Exactly. <laughs> so so the, I'm not I'm not doing that because I'm doing I'm being worthy and I'm doing art. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, 
you know. Uh, but I did tape the Hunger Games and I've been meaning to watch it for years and I've still got it. Watch it so, and also yeah, read them I'm as well. Yeah. They're a good read. Yeah. All right. Mm. Yeah. Okay. How do the films compare to the books? I think it's a really faithful, well-done adaptation, to be honest. Yeah. I'm, 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 I think it gets less faithful. Yeah, it gets more like... Okay. But yes. the film. But I think the first, the first film's very, very, yeah. the first film's very, very, a very nice adaptation, yeah. very effective adaptation, and right. not quite what you'd expect, I think, for that audience. Yeah, my daughter's obsessed so with I them just, all. Yeah, she loves it. Well, yeah, my my daughter's just watched the Hunger Games this this week. She's eight, um, and what I didn't realise is the version that's on Amazon is the 4K American yeah. cut, which is not the same as the BFI, no, the BFI, the the BBFC cut, which had all the digital blood taken yeah. out. So the cornucopia scene. It's a bit, it's a bit gory, isn't it? More... Oh, there's all these kids hacking each other's pieces. Like, oh, right. <laughs> okay. I mean, she was fine with it, but I was, as a parent, I was like, oh, <laughs> oh no. no. I made a grave error. No, it's fine. Yeah. No, the Ema, I made a, made a read them first, but I, we read them to her. At, um, like it's a bedtime mm. stories, so we made our way through all of yeah. them. So when she read the first one, they could watch the first film, and I read you the second one, they can watch the second film, okay. and so on. But yeah, she she really yeah. really enjoys them, and she's watched them. On repeat, pretty much yeah. ever since. So that's yeah. all right. No, fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> I've Look got um. To those. I've got an explanation of Kevin. Oh, oh right. Who's Kevin? So, what is Kevin? Kevin. So Kevin is one of the monsters seen on the whiteboard. Nobody bets on him. So physical descriptions: a sweet-looking guy who, on the surface, appears normal, but underneath is a psychotic killer who dismembers people. So apparently, there's a Kevin character in the Purge in the film The Purge, in one of the deleted scenes. Um, so he's someone who's been oh, out purging and has uh, clearly enjoyed himself. Okay. Uh, another inspiration of the Kevin trope is a guy seeming normal on the outside but psychotic on the inside, like Norman Bates. Uh, um, also a reference to Sin City's Kevin, so uh, Elijah Wood's character, I think. Right. Oh, okay. And then here it does mention... Um, like the title character Kevin from the novel, we need to talk about Kevin, so I was right about that. And... Mm. Also, a possible inspiration from the Juggernaut, for the Juggernaut from Thirteen Ghosts, both serial killers who would dismember people. So essentially, Kevin is a serial killer who's into dismemberment, but looks like a quiet, reserved guy on the outside. Okay, fair enough. I think you do see him then. Actually, there's there is a, a kind of serial killer type character who attacks um, uh, Kristen Connolly, uh, I think. And she gets away from him, mm. but he he, um, he he maybe lands a couple of stabs. Right. Um, I can't remember exactly. So that that could be him. That could be. Um, I think it's. We should mention while we're talking about the 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 various monsters. Um, we've been very critical about the the ending of the film because of the ultimate disappointing monster, but. This is a movie that has more on-screen monsters than almost any other horror film, and generally they're so good. Yeah. I thought. Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, Man and Unicorn are particularly my favourites. Yeah. <laughs> Unicorn is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And Unicorn is now, awesome. Merman, though, particularly great. Yeah. The Merman is wonderful, and mainly because it's kind of fit the, the the wonderful setup that Bradley Whitford's yes. character just yeah, yeah, wants yeah. to see, and also that lovely line about. We hate, I think Richard Jenkins says, we hate it with the merman. You know, it's always such a nightmare to clean up afterwards. <laughs> and uh, and then you find out what he means by that later on when yes. the merman appears. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, and the the kind of ballet dancer character who's got a yes. head full of teeth. 
Yeah, Sugar Plum Fairy. Yeah. Sugar Plum Fairy, yeah, yeah, of course. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, and uh, so, and obviously, Fornicus, uh, what, what is it again? Fornicus, Lord of Bondage <laughs> and, and Pain. Um, I so I just looked at that like. <laughs> So he, he turns around and he's like a bald-headed guy with uh, kind of razor-bladed cogwheels going into his head and he's um, gently fingering a spherical puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> well, he is. Well, um, he is yeah. But also, I mean, obviously, you know, this, this this next point is not quite at the same level as that, but like, I don't know who's got, what who the actor is. But his eyes are so soulful. He has this oh, moment, yeah. doesn't he, with Dana? Yeah. Just the, and when and then I think we have the reveal of all the boxes yeah. and you know the kind of cells. And it just like at that moment, it's just like, oh, poor guy. <laughs> just you know, like look at them. <laughs> at least that was my response. I was like, yeah, oh, yeah. he's you know, look like a very sweet guy. Really, he probably you know you'd probably have quite a nice you know cup of coffee with him. <laughs> That's quite specific. Well, well, I suppose coffee, I, tea. I didn't read it like Camel. that because Camel I was <laughs> I was too busy going. That is clearly Pinhead. That's Pinhead. Um, yeah. But then you know Pinhead did have soulful eyes as well, and and you know he he was a monster you could talk to and have a conversation. Probably not a cup right. of tea with a short conversation before he arranges you to be torn apart by chains. Yeah. But yeah. Um, but still, he's very well spoken, and I'm sure that Fornicus. Yes. Would also be um, a loquacious <laughs> gentleman. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, I mean, actually, uh, I would say he was my favourite. And my only disappointment is that I don't think you really get to see him doing anything at the end. You know, you obviously have that no. moment with him in the cell, but once he emerges, it's all the other other monsters, of which yeah. there are so many. Um, yes. Yeah, and uh, it's it's. The, just the, the mayhem at the end mm. is incredible. And also, clowns. Um, you know, I did just think, is that supposed to be Pennywise? Or is it just clowns? We're all scared of clowns. So it doesn't matter either way, does it? It's It just works either way. Um, and, uh, yeah. yeah, the dismemberment goblins. <laughs> <laughs> just fantastic. I don't, I don't think we saw them in action. The werewolf okay. obviously got quite a lot of play. In there, the giant snake, um, which in my head I just decided this is a, a deep cut reference to the monster in the Doctor Who story Kinder from 1982, which is a very um, kind of famous, terrible special effect among Doctor Who fans. Um, although I realised that only I would get that, um, <laughs> but I couldn't think of any other media example of a giant snake. Um, well, I think Weedon was just what was a Doctor Who fan, though, or is a Doctor Who fan. Uh, he, he, he has. Kind of, I, I don't think he yeah. described himself as a fan, but he was kind of familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Okay. Because uh, sure. he went to he <laughs> went sure to school in Britain, didn't he? So yeah. He, he, yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, he might yeah. well have been aware. Don't know. It could have been. Uh, well, uh, anyway, that's how I took it. I just thought, ah, great, uh, because um, what was it? Um, there was a review um, that Paul Cornell did. Or, um, well, it was a maybe it's not him, but it's a book that he co-wrote called The Doctor Who Discontinuity Guide, and it and it basically said uh, people criticise this snake for not looking very good, but ultimately it's a creature of false fears. So it's entirely appropriate <laughs> that its real form is a poor origami monster. <laughs> Um, the warning cabin in the woods looked better than that. So, 
Um, well, we're coming up to time. So is, is there anything either of you would like to say um, that, that you haven't already had a chance to say about Cabin in the Woods? I th- or have we covered the whole ground? I think so. It's just really enjoyable. So. Just give it, I think yeah, even if fantastic. you don't like horror, I think it's worth worth a look. I reckon. Yes. Yeah, because it because yeah. of the level of intelligence, because yeah. of the the subtlety of the comedy and and stuff Absolutely. like that. Yeah, but it, but equally, I would recommend it to a horror fan who doesn't who isn't really interested in the intellectualizing side of it. Um, because I do think you know the, the the stalking scenes, the kills, the monsters—they're all good. It's all well yeah. done. Um, mm-hmm. And and I was I was excited and thrilled by it. It wasn't just ho ho ho! Isn't that <laughs> clever? You know, it, it's it's got so much. It, it works on like every possible conceivable level. Yeah. So, and um, I, I probably wouldn't have got around to watching it this soon had you not nagged me about it, Kirsty. So Yay. thank you very much <laughs> for doing that. So I will continue you. to nag on various yes. fronts. <laughs> Good, you go right ahead. Well, thank you very much. There we go. That's The Cabin in the Woods, another classic that I had missed, but I've now discovered. And I'm, I feel the better man for having done so. <laughs> so thank you, Kirsty. Thank you, Stella. Um, Thanks, Dan. And right now we're going to we'll, we'll go back to the studio where, because we're recording <laughs> this adv- in advance, I have no idea who's there. Probably me, <laughs> but who knows? <laughs> Over to you, studio. Save us. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> and hello again. Here I am alone again. It's Dan. Hope you found that discussion quite interesting. I have to say, Cabin in the Woods was a movie I was delighted to discover in detail and one that I think I'll go back to in the future. So, recommendations then. Um, I'm all on my own, so I'll give. I'll try and compensate by giving you a range of potential recommendations. Um, Now, something I want to mention, although uh, consider this an honorary recommendation, because I would understand if you didn't think it was seasonally appropriate anymore. Last week for Halloween, um, as I mentioned in the podcast last week, um, I tried to watch some horror every day for a week or so. On Halloween itself, I was able to find on a shudder the streaming service, a movie which I've wanted to check out for a few years. Um, it's a production from 2013 called WNEF Halloween Special. Uh, it's and basically it's it's a feature film, but it's purports to be a roughly 90 minute long recording of a night of TV from 1987. Um, I think it's supposed to be a public access broadcast channel um, in. Um, I'm not sure which parts of America, to be honest. Um, but for Halloween in 1987, they um, did a live investigation into um, an apparent haunted house and planned a live seance, but it went wrong. Um, someone's found a recording of all the live TV of that night and put it on, dubbed it onto a tape and released it. Um, and now it's available to view on Shudder. The actual production was released in physical media in 2013, but it was only released on VHS. Um, 
quite appropriately and I was tempted to seek out a copy in that medium but I never got round to it so um, I jumped at the chance to watch it here um, and it's really charming it's comedy horror really um, it's spoofy in the um, the way it gently lampoons the conventions of uh, American public access TV of the time you know there are numerous commercial breaks and numerous commercials some of which are fast forwarded through by the unseen person who has dubbed the tape um, but many of which are there to watch and are kind of amusing parodies just on the right side of over the top um, of the kind of local focused advertising you'd get on a TV station like that and it does the whole thing does feel quite authentic um, but there are chilling moments as well as, as you get kind of deeper into the night um, and deeper into the um, the kind of enactment of the supposed seance so I would recommend that um, to any um, horror fans really especially um, if you're after something a little bit light and a little bit of a laugh however I'd understand if we've passed Halloween now and you won't want to you won't be in the mood um, for something quite so Halloween specific for another year so I've got a couple of other recommendations now on Thursday the 12th of November there is a double bill on the Horror Channel which I feel like I've re recommended before so um, I think sometimes they go back and just recreate their, their previous schedules um, and it's Tremors which is the classic uh, 1989 Kevin Bacon starring comedy horror monster movie which is great and I haven't seen it in far too long immediately followed by um, Hellraiser 3 Hell on Earth which is not a great sequel to um, Hellraiser um, but a lot of fun in its own right if taken on its own terms I haven't seen any, any of the later Hellraiser films but I do know that some people feel like Hellraiser 3 is the last good one I also feel like you could probably see it if you haven't seen the earlier Hellraiser films as well it's got different lead characters and it's kind of a, a good self-contained plot so I do recommend that however being aware that I might have recommended it to you before. There's a couple of other things on Netflix. There's The Haunting of Hill House. Now, um, if you're a horror fan worth your salt, you've probably already seen that, but I watched it last week over my Halloween week, um, and I did find it quite beautifully put together, quite intricate, and quite terrifying in a couple of uh, places. So... Strongly recommend it. I don't want to go into more detail because I'm sure we're going to do um, a full review episode relating to that sometime in the nearish future. Um, something I also watched a bit of was the new Amazon Prime series called Truth, Sequer Truth Seekers, which um, it stars Nick Frost and Samson Kayo and Malcolm McDowell. Um, and also has an appearance in it by Simon Pegg, although I haven't seen that far into it yet. Based on what I have seen, it's a lot of fun. Um, and the, the entire series, which is eight or ten episodes, is currently on Amazon Prime. So um, I, I think I'd recommend checking that out. Again, it's um, 
the kind of horror that you might be in the mood for if you're after something a bit lighter. And for me, it's the kind of horror which you can get away with watching during the daytime. Most times when I'm watching horror, I want it to be dark. And I guess, luckily, we're at the kind of the time of year when it's mostly dark anyway, whatever you're doing. Um, okay, so th- those are my recommendations um, for this week. And that concludes our podcast for this week. Next week, uh, we'll be back. Several of us will be back. And it will be another uh, missed classic we're going to be talking about. Um, and... I feel unjustly overlooked piece of one of my favourite horror writers, Nigel Neal's TV uh, CV. It's a one-off TV play from 1976 called During Barty's Party. And if you haven't heard of that, then, well, tune in next week and we'll tell you all about it. All right, everybody, thank you so much and you'll be hearing from us again. Take care and stay safe. You have been listening to And Now the Podcast Starts. Produced and released by Ambidextrous Solutions Limited. Presented by Kirsty Warrow, Stella Gaynor, and T.D. Velasquez. Special thanks to Greg Hume for our original theme music and to Brian Gorman for our original artwork. All dialogue and music clips from films, TV shows, and trailers are used for the purposes of criticism in the spirit of fair dealing as defined in UK law and fair use as defined in US law. No copyright infringement is intended. Please visit our home on the web, www.andnowpodcast.com for more content and contact details. Or visit our Facebook pages at and now pod or at Lee Cushing Pod. Follow us on Twitter at and now podcast or at Lee Cushing Podcast. If you'd like to donate to us, please visit patreon.com forward slash and now podcast. And now the podcast stops.